I'm so excited about this series. I love the book of Nehemiah. I have for a long, long time. There's great leadership lessons in here, and we are launching into this series today. And there was a chance that I was going to have to do that for my living room on a live video. So I'm really glad we get to do it here with everybody in person because there'll be a lot more kind of interaction and engagement that way. If you are joining us for the first time, you picked a good Sunday because we're launching into this new series. And this is going to take us all the way into May in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Our teachers for this series are going to be pretty cool too. So we have... Uh, John Richardson is going to be sharing with us, Kevin Crosley, Mike Andrus, and Bill Jones. And so what that means is we are going to have two of our executive pastors as a part of this series, and all three senior pastors of this church ever will be a part of this series, all in order. Um, So it's going to be really, really special. I'm super excited about it. It's such a neat thing for a church to even be able to do this. How many churches can bring back all of their senior pastors to be part of a teaching series together. I don't know. I've never heard of it before. Um, So I'm really, really excited and thankful to Mike and to Bill for being willing to be a part of this series with us. As we dive into this, I want to take a few moments just to talk inside baseball and uh, pull back the curtain a little bit on why we do teaching the way we do here. Because we're about to go into this Nehemiah series and there'll be a, a number of messages that as you just heard, I'm not going to be teaching. I just want to share with you kind of why we do some of that. So we follow a model here at this church that is a teaching team model. We have seven people on our teaching team. And there are some really, really good reasons. A lot of churches do this. There are really good reasons for doing it. A lot of the pastors that have kind of coached and mentored me have have strongly encouraged this type of model. And there's really, really good reasons for it. Um, I'm not I'm not the kind of pastor that wants to be a celebrity pastor. I'm not the kind of pastor that wants to teach every single week or or have my name or face all over things or anything like that. Everything we do here is as a team. And and it really does work that way, even behind the scenes. We're always connecting, meeting as a team, making decisions collaboratively as a team. It's something we believe in very, very strongly, and it makes us a lot stronger for it. But there's some very healthy reasons for why we believe in the teaching team model. I'm just going to share five of them with you here. First of all, it's healthier for our church. You've all seen probably what happens when a church begins to revolve around one person a bit too much. And there are some people that really like that because they want to know who's that point person that everything's kind of directed to. And really, I don't think that's the healthiest way for a church to go. I think it's much better for that load to be spread around when, when everything revolves around one person and that person messes up or something happens to that person, it really rocks a church. But a teaching team model helps to make sure that we have lots of different people involved in, in teaching the word of God to the church and sharing with them. And we all work together, by the way, in our sermon preparation, in our series planning, planning a series out for the year. Everything is very collaborative. So it's not like I just come in with a list and say, okay, guys, here's your assignment. We, we collaborate and work together on this and share ideas and work through things. Number two, it's healthier for me and my family. And this is where I've received the most advice on this in years past. When you're preaching that week, it's on your mind a lot. You're studying it, you're praying about it, you're thinking about it, and it really has an impact even on your family that week because so much of you, your mind is just focused on that week's message. So it's so healthy to not be doing that 50 or 52 weeks out of the year. It's also healthier for our preaching. 
The quality of our preaching is better because we have a teaching team that shares some of the teaching load here. And so that means that for me, every few weeks or so, I'll typically get a week or two break where I can uh, take a little more time to plan ahead and study more and spend more time in prayer and, and do a mini version of what John's talking about. Make sure that I'm following after Jesus, that I am in the right place spiritually to then come in here and share the word of God. But that also means for everybody else on our teaching team who typically will teach about once every month or two, that means they have lots more time to prepare and plan. And so the quality of all of our preaching goes up because of that. And one person mentioned this to me a couple of months ago. I don't even remember who it was, but they came up to me after a service and, and they were so sweet. And they, they said, you know, I, I love your preaching and I love it when you preach, but I totally understand why you don't do it 52 weeks out of the year. Because you couldn't do the preaching the way you do if you had to do that every single week of the year. And I, I so appreciate because that's really true. It's healthier for our staff and our elders that we have a teaching team. Um, I spend about 10 or so hours right now on elder-related things and about 15 to 20 hours on staff-related things per week. And that's, so there's a lot of time that goes into that. And some of that's because we're still in transition. There are, there are new things happening here. There are new staff coming on board, new staff hopefully about to come on board. So there's a lot of that that takes up a lot of time. Um, and so it's healthier because I get to spend more time with our elders and our staff. You know, we have a, um, we have a new children's ministry pastor that may be coming on soon a new junior high pastor potentially in the near future, a groups pastor potentially in the near future. We recently added a new executive pastor, a video producer, a technical production specialist, an outreach coordinator, and some other people to our team. That's a lot of change. That's a lot of transition. And so a good chunk of my week is spent meeting with our staff and, and coaching them and through strategy and vision about the church. And so it, it takes time to do that. And it's healthier for our staff and elders that we have a teaching team to help share some of the load here. One more thing. It's healthier for others in our church who are gifted to communicate in this way. So there are some places where there's one person that does virtually all of the teaching and the only chance you might ever get to, to teach in the main service is if that person gets sick. And that's not the way here. It's healthier because we have other people, gifted communicators on our staff, who can come up here and share the word of God and use the gifting that God has given them. So it helps them to grow. It also means that I'm sitting under their teaching. So I'm not just letting them speak when I'm, you know, off vacationing somewhere or sick. I'm here sitting under their teaching as well, listening to their messages. And that's important for me. That's important for them. It also means we get to talk afterward and, and figure out how we need to improve and refine and grow all of us as communicators, as teachers of the word of God. So I just wanted to share that because we're about to go into a season here where due to some travel on my part and this, this aspect of getting to bring in the other senior pastors from the past here, we're going to go through a few weeks where I won't be speaking regularly every week. And I just wanted to remind you, many of you who are new here within the last year, you wouldn't have heard about this. But over a year ago, I talked when I first came in about the importance of a teaching team model. That's what we're doing. That's why we're doing it. Just want to share the why behind some of that that is happening. So we're going to go through this book of Nehemiah together. We're going to have several other members of our teaching team being a part of that. I'm going to be in Israel for part of that, so that's a part of the reason why. And then when we come back from our trip to Israel, we've got Mike and Bill, and then I'll be there again, and we've got Easter in the middle of all that. We've got a baptism Sunday in the middle of all that. I am so looking forward to the next couple of months here. It is going to be great. So with that little 
inside look at what happens behind the scenes at our church. Let's transition into the book of Nehemiah and study this book together. I absolutely love this book. I love the struggle that Nehemiah is in. One challenge for me in this passage is that, and and if you are newer here, you won't know this, but a little over a year ago, I actually preached a message here on this exact same passage in Nehemiah chapter one. And I forgot about that until like a week ago when I realized, wow, I, I just preached on this. In fact, it was my sixth message in this church that I preached was on Nehemiah chapter one. And it would probably be a little bit too lazy of me to just go back and use the same material. So we are going to take a completely different approach on this than we did a little over a year ago. And um, hopefully that will be fresh and will set us up well for this entire study in the book of Nehemiah. A guy I know posted on, uh, online this week, he preaches in churches and he said, help me spirit to make what is unfamiliar understandable. Help me spirit to make what is unfamiliar understandable and what is familiar strangely fresh. I just love that. What is unfamiliar, understandable. What is familiar, strangely fresh. And so that's what I want to do every time I approach the word of God is make what may seem familiar to us somehow fresh, bring out new insights from it. And the beautiful thing about the word of God is that that's the way it works. If we are willing to approach it with that mindset of getting something new, something fresh, God always brings out fresh insight, fresh application for us. Now, to help us as we work through this, We've got a study journal. We told you about this last week. I think we have some more back at our welcome centers now, um, but I don't know for sure. I know that a lot of them uh, went away last week. If not, we can print more. This is just the text of Nehemiah, by the way. There are no study notes in here, but what it is is the text of Nehemiah. It can lay flat so it's easy to write on, and you've got the text and a note section next to it. This is how I like to study the Bible. So I will have the Bible on one half of the page, my notes area on the other half of the page, and I like to draw all over it and then circle words and make connections and draw arrows over to things that I'm writing. So we just figured we'd provide this for you if it's a, if it's a help for you throughout this series to kind of have it all in one place, then great, let us know because we could continue to do this. Or if it's not really a help for you, then we don't need to bother and we won't, we won't produce them anymore. Uh, they cost us about $9 to make. So if you want to donate 9 or $10 for it, that would be great. If you can't though, please don't feel obligated to you. We want you to get one either way. So we're going to study this book of Nehemiah here and it'd be helpful for you to have a little background on what things looked like in this world at this time. Bring some context to this situation so you get the historical setting for where Nehemiah is at in this place and time. The Jewish people are mostly subjects throughout this whole period. And we want to know how did they get there? Why are they there? Where are they going? That sort of thing. You may know that at one point the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom was much more evil. They were conquered in 722 BC by the Babylonians, or by Assyria rather. At the time, Babylon was a rather small city, but eventually it grew to become a very powerful, prominent city, and they overthrew the Assyrians. And so Babylon was the world power at a time when the southern kingdom of Judah was around in the nation of Israel. And in 586 BC, the kingdom of Judah rebelled against Babylon and they were destroyed. The cities were destroyed. Many of the Jews were taken away as punishment into captivity, especially the leaders. Then in 539 BC, Persia conquered Babylon. 
So now we have another change of world power. Cyrus, uh, the, the great, the leader of Persia who led this conquering of Babylon, he directed the Jews to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible says that God directly influenced him to do that which is really cool. So God influenced Cyrus the Great to have the Jews rebuild a temple. One of the Jews, Zerubbabel, led a team of 40,000 Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's really cool. So the temple was rebuilt in 515 BC when Darius I was the king of Persia. Now Darius tried to conquer the Greek city-states but he failed. He took his massive navy uh, and took on the Greek fleet, which was much smaller, but they suffered a huge loss at the Battle of Marathon. Then Darius's son Xerxes took over and he ruled Persia. He also tried to conquer the Greek city-states. This is when the Battle of Thermopylae takes place, when you have the 300, you know, that, that movie, the 300, that you probably have never seen because it's really bad and gory, but there's this movie called 300. I'll just tell you about it. With 300 hoplites from Sparta and they're there with a few hundred other warriors and they try to hold off the Persian horde and eventually they get betrayed and and, uh, the Persian army comes through there. Then in 465 BC, Artaxerxes takes over Persia for his father Xerxes. Um, Artaxerxes defeated a Greek revolt during this time that was in Egypt. He decimated the Greek fleet at this time and then in 458 BC, the Bible says that God influenced King Artaxerxes to give permission for a Jew named Ezra to lead 5,000 people back to Jerusalem to teach the people how to worship and obey God. So God led Cyrus the Great to send Zerubbabel back to rebuild the temple. And then here we are sometime later, God leads another king, King Artaxerxes, to give Ezra permission to go back and teach the people how to worship and obey God. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, Nehemiah was Artaxerxes' cupbearer. So that same king that let Ezra go back with the 5,000 people, that is the king that Nehemiah serves. And Nehemiah's brother evidently went back with Ezra to Jerusalem, and then he reports back to Nehemiah what's happening there. So he gives them an update on how things are going, and that's what leads to the whole journey that Nehemiah is going to go through in this book we're about to study. That comes from a report from Nehemiah's brother who went back with the Jews to Jerusalem out of captivity and then kind of gives this information back to Nehemiah. Now, the next four kings of Persia are Darius II, Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes III, and then Darius III. And Darius III was a weak ruler. He was not a very good guy, especially in a battle. In fact, he was known to desert his men on the battlefield even when they were winning the battle. You've got to be pretty pathetic to desert your men when you're actually winning the battle, but that's what he did. And so this is how history remembers him. That is artwork of Darius III, he was eventually killed by his own people because of his cowardice. And Alexander the Great came in and conquered um, a lot of his cities, Babylon, Susa, and the capital, Persopolis. Uh, Susa, by the way, is where Nehemiah is when we launch into this book in a little bit. So then the Greeks, finally, under Alexander the Great, they conquer Persia in 330 BC. And over the next couple hundred years, this gives the Greeks incredible influence over the Jewish people. And then in 63 BC, the Romans conquer the Greeks. 16 years later, so the Romans have conquered the Greeks now. We've gone from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, all the way through these hundreds of years of empires. 
And now, 16 years after the Romans conquered the Greeks, we get Herod the Great, who was appointed the king regent over the area of Galilee in Judea. And at this point, we are not far off from the birth of Christ. So just here at the beginning, I want us to take a moment to appreciate the setting that we are in historically. We have come from the King Saul and David and Solomon and his sons to a divided kingdom, to the northern kingdom being stripped away, to the southern kingdom being stripped away, to God bringing back some remnants of his people to rebuild the temple and bring worship back to God and obedience back to God. Nehemiah comes back in as a part of that. And Nehemiah is, has some of the last material written about before a period of about 400 years of silence where there's, there's no information that we have in the Bible that tells us what God was doing at that time. And then Herod the Great hits the scene and Jesus enters the scene and we get into the realm of the New Testament. So I hope that just kind of gives you a big picture view. For me, it's so helpful to be able to know this is where we are at in history. This is where Nehemiah sits in all of this. We're just gonna do this once and hopefully that sets us up for some context for the rest of our series. So now I wanna do this. I want us all to pray and ask God if he would teach us something this morning as we look at this first chapter of Nehemiah. Would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we're so grateful to be able to be here uh, for your protection on the roads as we came out here. Lord, we pray for those that, uh, that are maybe out there driving right now or, or some of them had to turn around and head back home. Lord, I pray that all of us, whether we're sitting in this room or watching online, would be able to focus our thoughts and our attention on you right now and what you want to teach us from your word. Help us, Lord, to get rid of all the distractions from the week, the, 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 the feelings that we struggle with from day to day, the, the worries that we have that we talked about last week, Lord. Help us to just fix our eyes in on you and what you want to teach us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's study Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. This is something you can follow along with in your Bible or you can use the YouVersion Bible app. Just go to YouVersion and go to events and then First Free Church is in there or you can visit efree.org slash Bible. The text is there as well. We're just in Nehemiah chapter one. Here we go. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. So who is this guy, Nehemiah? Well, he was born and raised in this Persia area. The last verse in chapter one tells us that he was the cupbearer to this king, Artaxerxes. Now that's a big deal. The cupbearer was a very important position. He had access to the king that no one else had. He had to taste the food and the wine before it was brought to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And that meant that this king had to trust him a lot. He had to trust him with his life. And so because of this, we know from other ancient literature that cupbearers, they tended to be more than just the taste testers for the king. They were trusted advisors. They were people who the king would turn to and ask for their counsel on different situations. And sometimes they were able to help advise the king. So Nehemiah, a Jewish man who was born in captivity here in Persia, has become 
just about the most powerful man in the world. He is the cupbearer, the advisor, the influencer to the most powerful man and the most powerful empire in the world right now. Incredible trust that is placed in him. Incredible opportunity that he has. And then what, what happens? Well, Han and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. So Han and I had left, came back, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. So going back to our history from earlier, it was about 60 years before that Zerubbabel had left with 40,000 people to go rebuild the temple. And then about 13 years before this in Nehemiah chapter 1 here, about 13 years prior is when Ezra led another 5,000 Jews back to teach the people how to worship and obey God. So Nehemiah is getting this report now from his brother who evidently went through uh, that with them about what's happening in the kingdom of Judah. And here's what he says. Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And what I want us to do today is follow Nehemiah's path to new levels of leadership. He is about to take on a challenge in this book that has never faced him before. A completely new experience, something very different. And God is gonna use this man in an incredible way. How did this happen? How can we learn from it? How did Nehemiah go from being cupbearer to the king of Persia to the leader of the Jewish people? That's what we're gonna try to start tracking this morning. Here's the first thing that stands out from Nehemiah's journey. The first thing is that Nehemiah became aware of a problem that affected others. Nehemiah became aware of a problem that affected others. Here's the thing. He didn't have to be concerned with any of this. If any Israelite had a cushy job, it was Nehemiah. He had a great salary. He had the right zip code. Right there in the palace in Susa, man, this guy had it made. I'm sure he had an incredible benefits package. He literally ate like a king. This guy was in a great situation for a Jewish man born in captivity. He wasn't one of the people that went back with Ezra, even though his brother did. And so he now learns about this as he is in this palace in Susa, these people that are far away, a city that is disgraced, but he's never even been there. So how will he respond? Look at verse four. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Why was this such a big deal to Nehemiah? Why would he break down and weep over this? Well, it's because in those days, a city without walls wasn't really much of a city at all. It was vulnerable It was exposed. It was a conquered city that without walls could easily be conquered again at any time. It meant that the people there had no security. But more than that, it was disgraceful. Instead of a wall, they had piles of wall garbage lying all around the city. The gates had been burned down, so there's burnt wood at the entrances of the city. It just looks like a dump. And for Nehemiah and the Jewish people, this is no ordinary city. This is Jerusalem. This is the city of God. This is the city of God's blessing and where God would be present with them in that temple. This is a disgrace to God 
that this city, instead of walls, has these piles of rubble all over the city. It's a disgrace to the people. It's a disgrace to God. And so he mourned and he fasted for several days. Here's the second thing about Nehemiah that stands out. Nehemiah allowed himself to be deeply moved by a problem that affected others. That's very important. He allowed himself to be deeply moved by this problem that affected others. He wasn't just aware of it. He didn't just hear about it and move on. He allowed it to impact him. He let it affect him deeply. In fact, the text says that he sat down. He took it seriously. He didn't just hear the news and say, well, that's too bad, and then move on. And I honestly think that we have become too hardened to many of the difficulties around us that other people face, largely because we get so barraged with so many of them. And it becomes overwhelming. And so we see story after story in the media about this problem, this crisis, and this issue, and this emergency. And eventually, I think we become callous to it. And we just say, I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to learn about it. I'm going to see it. I'm going to observe it on the news. But other than that, you know, it's not in my world. It's not something that affects me deeply. It's not something that I'm going to even allow to move me. And so we almost turn that part of our brain off, don't we? When we see what's happening with other people, because it's hitting us so much that we feel like we have to kind of put up a wall there and not allow it to move us. What is hurting other people? What is impacting other people? It can be overwhelming to us. Nehemiah allowed himself to be moved by what was happening to people a long ways away in a place that he had never been. And he sat down and he wept and he prayed and he let it hit him. He allowed himself to be moved by this and to to mourn. Mourning, grieving, being sorrowful. It gets a bad rap sometimes, like we're supposed to snap out of it or not do that. But mourning, grieving can be an incredibly healthy thing. Sometimes God specifically moves in response to our mourning or our grieving. In other words, there are good things that God is willing to do if we will take something seriously enough to grieve over it. We see this in God's word. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. David wrote many times these psalms that are called psalms of lament, which are where he mourns a situation and cries out to God. And then the the best example I know of is Hezekiah, this king who became deathly ill, and the prophet Isaiah came to him with a message from God, and the message from God said, you need to get your affairs in order because you are about to die. And that was it. God says, you're going to die. End of story. It's done. No point in doing anything about it. And what did Hezekiah do? He turned his face to the wall. He got down on his knees and he wept bitterly. And he cried out to God for mercy. Isaiah was walking out of the courtyard at this point. And as he got to the edge of the courtyard, God stopped him and said, turn around. I've got another message. And Isaiah went back into Hezekiah and here's the message that he got from God. It says, from God to Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears God saw his mourning. He saw his grieving. And then God says, I will heal you. This deathly illness, I will heal you and add 15 years to your life. Now, understand, God didn't change his mind here. God doesn't do that. He was always willing to add to Hezekiah's life. But he wanted Hezekiah to take it seriously. He wanted Hezekiah to mourn and grieve and turn to him and rely on God. Mourning is often the first step to healing. Because to mourn is to admit that there's a problem, 
There's something wrong that I'm grieving over. We see that all over God's word. So God would rather use someone who mourns what God mourns than someone who acts religious but ignores other people's problems. God would rather use someone like Nehemiah who mourns what God mourns than someone who acts religious but ignores other people's problems. And we see this from Isaiah, that same prophet. Here is how Isaiah condemned the people of Israel. This is God speaking through Isaiah in chapter one of his book. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats when you come to worship me. Who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Now, can't you just picture that? The, the pomp and the ceremony that all surrounded their religious activity. And God is saying, this is all worthless to me. Why is it worthless, God? Why doesn't this mean anything to you? Look a few verses ahead and he says this. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. What is God saying here? The thing that I care about is something that's not affecting you right now. And the reason I won't accept your worship is because you don't mourn the things that I mourn. You aren't trying to help people with a crisis, a problem, a situation that doesn't impact you because you're able to come into the temple and march around and have all kinds of ritual and religious activity and you don't even care about these other people, orphans, widows, oppressed, people who have been treated unjustly. You don't care about them, that's what I care about. And that's why God judges the people of Israel. God would rather use someone who mourns what God mourns than someone who acts religious but ignores other people's problems. And I wonder if that describes us. How many times do we see the problems that other people face and we think, I'm sure glad I don't have to deal with that. And I get it because it happens all the time. The barrage of these stories coming in, whether it's online or on TV or wherever you get your news. Problem, 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 problem. And so it's so easy for us to just turn it off and not think about it and not be mourned by the things that mourn God. And I wonder if by the end of today's message, God is gonna prompt some of your hearts to begin to work on a problem that is, has moved the heart of God. So Nehemiah became aware of a problem that affected others. He allowed himself to be deeply moved by that problem, to mourn and fast and pray over it. And then he prays this prayer in verse five, Nehemiah 1.5. He says, then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me pray night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please, remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name 
to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Now, a little over a year ago, when we talked about this passage, we broke down this prayer into eight different components that give us an incredible model for us to follow when we are praying to God, especially when we become aware of a problem and we want to do something about it. And we want God's blessing and help to do something about it. So there's a a pattern here of eight different things. We don't have time to unpack those things here today. We did that a while ago. So here's what I'm going to do instead. I had it all worked out and then I realized it was going to be like a three-hour sermon. So I figured, okay, I better not do that, especially today. What I'm going to do is I'm going to post one of these on our Facebook page every day for the next eight days. So if you, if you get on our Facebook page or you can like it and you'll get notified about it, then every day I'm going to post one of these prayer principles that are in this prayer because it's really incredible. And here's what I would challenge you to do in that. If you will, if you will commit to pray for the next eight days about whatever God is putting on your heart and follow this pattern, then just every day make that your prayer focus for that day. And I'll post it on there. You can see it. And then that whole day, spend that day praying about whatever that thing is and we'll work through that together. But here's the last point I want to make as we wrap up today's message. Nehemiah didn't just pray about it. He became a part of the solution. In fact, he asked God to make him a part of the solution. How did he end his prayer here? He said, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. See, Nehemiah became aware of a problem that affected others. It didn't really affect him. He allowed that problem to move him, to be moved by what was disgraceful to the people of God and and to the place where God dwelled with his people, the place where he would be honored. And then the third thing that stands out to me is this. Nehemiah took action to address the problem. Not on his own, not on his own strength, not without seeking God's favor first, God's blessing first, Not without asking God to move the heart of the king to be a part of this. But what we'll see in chapter 2 next week is that four months later, so Nehemiah learns this news. He prays, 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 fasts, prays, 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 prays. And four months later, he gets an opportunity in front of the king to share this crisis. And God is going to work and move through that. So here are the takeaways for you and me today. I'm going to put this in a little different Phrasing, what problems do you see that affect others and maybe don't even affect you? Maybe you've become aware of something this last week or this last month as you've watched the news, as you've read things online, as you've seen things happen in your community, in your neighborhood. Are there problems that, that God has revealed to you that's so easy for us to just say, well, that's too bad? And then move on. What is a problem that you've become aware of that's affecting other people? Second question, have you allowed those problems to move you deeply? I think this is something we don't want to deal with. And we have so many distractions to help us not deal with it. It is so easy for us to just turn on the TV or turn on some Netflix or turn on some YouTube or do something that's going to distract us from whatever this thing is so that we never have to take the time to wrestle with something that God has put before us and said, I care about this. 
Think of Isaiah telling the people of Israel, you do all this great religious activity, but you don't care about people who have injustice. You don't care about people who are oppressed. You don't care about orphans and widows. And so I'm gonna judge you because of that. Have Have we been guilty of that exact same thing? Distracted, not mourning what God mourns. Last question. Will you be a part of the solution? As I was preparing for this week, I was praying about it and and I just got the sense that I think God has been touching some hearts in our church to respond to some of these problems. Now, I don't know what those are, but I think you do. And maybe not all of you, maybe just one of you, but I think that God is working in our church to bring about a a passion and a care for people who are hurting with problems that maybe don't affect us, that it's so easy for us to shut off, but that if we will just take a moment and let it sink in, we will be moved by and mourn what God mourns. And then the question is, are we going to then take steps to be part of the solution? It's great to see it and say, God, I pray that you would help those people. Lord, I pray that you would send someone to rescue those people. Lord, I pray that you would do something to bring about something better there. That's good. Pray. But God has chosen to use us as his hands and his feet. And so I just wonder if there are some people here today or watching online who God is touching their heart and saying, I want you to be a part of the solution. For whatever that problem is, that God has been revealing to you. I believe that God is looking for men, for women, for teenagers, for children who are gonna see a problem, be willing to feel deeply about it, pray to God about it, and do something about it. So as we close today and we prepare to take communion together, My challenge for you is when this service is over, if God has spoken to you about something today or this week, come up and let us pray for you. Let us know how he's been moving in your heart. We'll have people up here who would love to pray with you and pray for you as you get into the solution of whatever this thing is that God has laid on your heart. Or send us an email if you're watching online right now. Maybe you're watching online and you can't come forward for prayer. Tell you what, shoot us an email pastor at efree.org. Let us know how God has been working in your life so we can be praying for you as you pray about what God would have you do to help in problems that don't affect you, but that move the heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, it is so convicting to hear Isaiah say, to the people of Israel. You've got all this religious ritual, but you don't care about people around you who are struggling, who are hurting, who are oppressed, who have faced injustice. God, I pray that we wouldn't be those people. I pray that you would move in our hearts to to see these problems around us that you care about, orphans, widows, people who are oppressed. 
And not to just think about it, not to just pray about it, but God, to do something about it. Help us to be a part of the solution, Lord. You saw a crisis. You saw a problem that we were in the middle of that we could not get ourselves out of. And you came over 2,000 years ago to this earth to help a people that you didn't have to help, to sacrifice for us something you didn't have to sacrifice. You could have just gone on without us. But you gave us this model to follow of being willing to step out and help other people with a crisis, a problem that doesn't even directly affect us. Help us to do what you have shown us to do, Lord. And now as we remember the sacrifice that you made, I pray that you would bless our time together and remind us. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.